All right. Nice to see the nice to see the fellowship. I'm also very much encouraged. Um, just just so you know, um, oh Paulo, it's nice you can join us. I know how he would view those that sit way in the back in, uh, during the service, right? So thank you. Thank you. Joins us. Um, let, me, let me say this. Um, I've had a couple of conversations and with well, a number of conversations. But one of the things, just so you know, uh, you are all on a treadmill of ministry. And I know that I don't, use, I don't say that negatively at all. It's just the reality. You know what? You're going to have to find a Sunday school worker for Sunday. You're going to have to, you know, what do we do with the coronavirus? We're going to have to make some of the, and, and I, I understand that. In my role here in the EFCA, um, one of the, this is, this is what I do. This is, my, this is a ministry to which God has called me. It's to help you think about some of these things. I don't have all the answers. I'm not claiming that I do. But, but I'm able to think about things, go down a little longer, and, and stay a little longer and or go a little deeper and stay a little longer on some of these issues and, and not just contemporary but historically to then share it with you to, to help you understand some of these things. You can, again, as I said, you can disagree. But, but it's, it's thinking about these things in maybe new or fresh or different ways uh, and, and that is part of my role in the EFCA and I consider it a privilege um, and I'm glad to see you thinking and pondering and processing, you know, that clicked or that was helpful or, and, and I, I praise God for that. That's partly why, why John and, and uh, it was uh, Eddie before, but now uh, uh, Cedric and John and Tony and we, we've, we've continued and, um, and it, it, so it's been a good thing. It's been a very helpful thing. Um, yes, we should all vacate. Okay. Well, at least that we know, though it lies dormant for two weeks, so be that as it may. Um, so so in, in light of what we talked about last time, I want to just take, take just 10 minutes to take a look at a grid that I think will help us to understand what happens when, when we have, uh, and I ended with the, the, the gospel lens. It was the gospel lens that transformed the way things were understood. And that is fundamentally true for anything that we, that we think about, that we talk about. And, and this, this depiction, uh, I think, will help us to, to grasp that. You know, the, the central message of Jesus is the kingdom. So the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, the gospel is the central message. Now, I want you to notice, it's the central message of Jesus. That is the message that he gave. But it's also the central message about Jesus. This gets to that central, the, the central focus of the Bible that's on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like we read from Hebrews 1 this morning, that God has spoken through various times, etc., but now he has supremely and finally spoken in his Son. Uh, actually, the, the uh, Greek, it's en, en huyo, in Son, not even in the Son, in Son, um, identifying strongly that this is God the Son. And we see this. It's the central message about Jesus, which comes from 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel I preach to you, which is which you received, and it is of what first importance. So I want us to understand that. Now, here, here are some nuances that I think it's important for us to understand. The gospel is of first importance, plain and simple. That, if you, want a, if you want a basic hermeneutical lens or grid by which you read the Bible, this is one of them. This is one of those you throw on the table. This is, this is what I approach the text with. It's, it's, it's Christ. It's the gospel. It's Christ. 
That's one of the important lenses. This gets to Irenaeus, right? So do we have a picture of a king or a dog? Let's work at getting a picture of a king, right? Not, not the dog. Uh, very, very helpful. But from there, we move to sound doctrine that's in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So what, what happens here is that from the Bible, from the gospel, the Bible, we, we build truth or we build doctrine. We, we, we discern doctrine. Uh, and, and that's what, what Paul is saying here. And then finally... He says a couple of things about only let your manny manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So there is an implication to the gospel. There is an implication to the way we live and the way we think and the way everything about us has been transformed. And then he says that Paul, confronting Peter, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, it's, that's living out this. Peter was not living his life in a manner that was worthy of the gospel. And on the one hand, we'd say, what's the big deal? He just didn't want to, he didn't want to sit down and eat Chipotle with the, you know, the, the Gentiles. Well, it wasn't quite that. It was in his practice, he denied the justification that he had experienced and affirmed. That was the issue. And that was, that was then a denial of the, of the material principle of the Reformation, before the Reformation. But he, he was denying the gospel in practice. So it mattered. And this is why that we've, all the stuff we've talked about, we do care about, about the stuff that we talked about. But this is why now um, what we would say then is the gospel, the biblical gospel, is it has a doctrinal centrality and it has a functional centrality. And remember, the, the things that we talked about in the, 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 the progressive evangelical, there is a functional centrality and that functional centrality drives the doctrinal. So my experience drives the doctrinal. It's backwards. But hang on. Uh, all that to say is we affirm the doctrine, but there's also an implication. And there's an order. So let me ask you. Paulo, does the imperative precede the indicative or does the indicative come before the imperative? The, the indicative comes first. You just preached morally. No, that's no, okay. <laughs> but the indicative is the statement of fact of what God has done in Christ. Right, Bill? Yeah, it, it does. It comes out of the imperative. So what God has done in our lives by grace, through faith alone and Christ alone, we are born anew. And because we've been born anew, we cry. And you know what we cry? Abba, Father. That's what we cry. And, and, and our lives reflect our Father, the Son. Uh, and so, so it's grounded in what God has done. That's the doctrinal centrality that then results in a functional centrality. And, and in our function, often what happens is there will, be a, there will be a divide between these two as if they're not even related. It's exactly right. And what does Don Carson say about the antitheses? Social yeah. Social yep. Yep. I, I, I agree with you, Bill. Uh, I agree fully. Uh, so all that, this is important for us to understand. Now, let's look at this picture. This, I think, describes, uh, this is not original with me. Uh, Paul Hebert talked about some of this. I've, I've massaged it and, and adapted it. And, and, and anyway, here, here's, I think, what where we affirm the doctrinal centrality of the gospel. That is, we affirm the truthfulness of the Bible, the sufficiency of the scripture, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only the gospel that Jesus taught about himself, right, the good news, but the gospel about him, that which is of first importance. You cannot deny that which is of first importance without, without denying Christianity, right? And that's what we see here. We're affirming this. But we're not, we're not only affirming that, we're affirming that with implications. And here they are. That is, it doesn't matter what you talk about. Any issue of life is going to be affected by the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has changed us. So it doesn't matter if you're going to talk about your family, you're going to talk about ethics or morals, you're going to talk about diversity, you're going to talk about compassion and justice. Those are some contemporary issues that are pretty pressing issues today. Um, but when we, and we acknowledge they are an entailment of the gospel. That is a functional entailment of the gospel. It flows from our doctrinal affirmation. It flows from our having been regenerated or born again. It flows from it. And notice that the gospel of Jesus is at the center. That's what we say here. And the gospel has implications to all of life and ministry. That is, you can cut this, you can cut the pie of your life. Cut your, cut your life into a pie. Cut it into a pie. Uh, mother uh, or husband or, or uh, pastor or Sunday school teacher or employee or it, it doesn't matter. Do it any way you want. And any way you slice, if your life is a pie, you, you slice it any way. And one slice will be family, one slice will be uh, church, one, one slice will be faith, one slice will be etc. But here's the catch. We don't compartmentalize. Every one of those pieces of pie, you know, what, you know what's written over it? Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. That's what this means. Cut your life any way you want. Compartmentalize it any way you want. And, it's, and it says, Jesus Christ is Lord. So how is he the Lord in each of these areas? But remember, the indicative and the imperative. Our imperative, the way we live, is grounded in what God has done. Now, this is now the doctrinal and functional centrality of how we understand the gospel. That is the scriptures. Notice now what happens. Now, notice what's happened. The gospel is now assumed. And we focus on the centrality of function. Here's what happens. So now, and I've done this in concentric circles. So this concentric circle still, still intersects with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but, but the focus is going to be on the entailment or the, 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 the function or living it out. We're going to assume the indicative and we're going to focus on the imperative. We're going to assume the regeneration and we're going to focus on the, the implications in life. But here's what ends up happening when we do that. And it has detrimental consequences. Notice that first, walls go up between these issues. That is, we become single-issue people. And, you know, every one of, in every one of our churches, there are those that have certain passions about um, whatever. And thanks be to God that, that they're there but they're part of a larger whole. That issue does not become our new mission. The Lord Jesus has given us a mission, and it's not that. Now that will be a part of the larger mission, right? But it's not going to co-opt the mission. But that's what ends up happening. And so, even thinking about the family, how in the world, if you don't homeschool your kids, can you even be a Christian? You laugh. That divides churches. You know why? Because the walls have gone up. It has become a gospel issue. 
And that's why they respond this way, because they're assuming the gospel, they're focusing on the entailments of the gospel, but because, because it's only intersecting the main part of the gospel, walls go up. So what about, what about uh, I mean, even the question you asked earlier, walls have gone up. I mean, shouldn't we all care about justice? Now, now we're going to disagree on, on, on policy. How would that best be done? That's fine. But, but the fact of God's people, we've always cared for that. You're, we're talking about the coronavirus now. You know, in the early church, read Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity. You know why Christianity expanded and multiplied and grew while it was being persecuted before, before the Edict of Milan, 313, when it became legal? Because they loved one another. And not just each other, they loved those that were dying. It's, it's amazing. Babies, infants, infanticide. They left them to die. Guess who cared for them? The church of Jesus Christ. This isn't new. It, it's, it's part and parcel of what, what it means to, to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, all that to say what's happened now is if I don't have the same sort of commitment and passion that this person does, walls go up and there are divisions. But here's something else that happens. And this is, this is probably the, the, the most dangerous, and that is not just that walls go up. Oh, by the way, Hymns or choruses? Same sort of thing, isn't it? The walls go up. And the reason that it becomes so critical for that person, whatever the issue is, is because they make it a gospel-centered issue. And that's the second issue. That is, the gospel is displaced. The lens changes, the gospel is changed. So notice what happens. Each of these issues is not understood through the grounding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and biblical truth, that is understood through the lens of their issue, of the issue. Which means that's why they conclude you're unbiblical. You heard that expression? You're just, that, that's an unbiblical position. Maybe, it could well be, but it's not just because I disagree with you or you disagree with me. So this is, this is a very significant, and this then I think describes, and the reason I include this, because I think it describes what's happened in the progressive evangelical. But, to be fair, it's not just happened with the progressive evangelical. I, I'm, I'm telling you, you laughed about homeschooling. You laughed about, about uh, so how do we understand faith and science? And, 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 and so what about the, the, the miraculous gifts? What about the age of the universe? We divide over these things. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's just the progressive evangelical. We don't often navigate these things so well ourselves either. Now, there's a, there's a third concentric circle. So notice, gospel assumed the centrality of function. And this then, by the way, uh, what you had asked earlier, Adam, this, this would be, the, and Bill, this would be the problem with the social, the social gospel. That is, it focused on, the, on, on just the doing, but it... But it but it, but it compromised it. In fact, it eviscerated biblical truth is what ended up happening. But notice now the third concentric circle. That is the gospel's denied. And friends, there are, there are churches, there are denominations, and I'm not pointing fingers. I, I could tell them because it's public that have gone, this, that have gone to this degree where, where uh, same-sex marriage is affirmed, LGBTQIA is affirmed uh, as, if, as if the Bible's taught it all along. These kinds of things where the gospel is outright denied. There is, no, there is no call to repentance to any of us, much less those that are clearly identified as explicit sins, in which one will not inherit the kingdom of God. No need to call to repentance. Now, to be fair, I think sometimes we, 
we, we have a category of respectable sins that we don't call to account. That's problematic. That's called hypocrisy. As we talked last year, we have window sins and mere sins, and the window sins we like to call out and address, and they're the sins of others. But there are mere sins that we need to look into the mirror and look into our hearts. Greg, as you said yesterday, one of my concerns is not acknowledging sin when we look through the, some of the ways in which we're going to sort of tweak the Bible or whatever the case might be. And, and, and we're, we're prone to that, friends. We are prone to that. So we need to be aware of that. Look, look in the mirror. The Word of God works as a mirror, does it not, in our lives. Uh, and, and so... I'm just saying, I came from a denomination, so did you, Mike, in which uh, the gospel is denied, and, and maybe some others of us as well. So where are we? Um, friends, we need, to, we need to be wise about ensuring that the, the entailments, the right entailments, do not become the gospel so that it displaces and replaces it. Uh, Yes. I would assume that in most cases, those who are actually <coughs> doing exactly what Mike says <coughs> deny that <coughs> deny that they're replacing the gospel. They say, no, we're living out the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and you know, you know the response to that? Well, that's your take. Right. You know, so, so that, that's the day in which we live. And, and you know, here, here, here we are. Like it or not, um, did God really say? And, and I think we need to, with courage, say, thus saith the Lord. With courage, with boldness, with compassion, with humility, but with confidence, because God has said. So do we believe it or not? Yeah. And, and I would say this, that you know what? We, we are not called to convince somebody. You know, I find, I find this, when, I, when, I, when I'm in a posture of needing to convince somebody they're right, or I'm sorry, they're wrong, I'm right, or at least, at least that they can concede maybe a view that I have, but see, plausibility just doesn't exist anymore. And this gets back to the take or the spin. There is no plausibility to something other than my take, right? There just isn't this, this plausibility. I find, though, in my, in my spirit, when I have to defend or convince somebody, I, I get defensive, that's what I found. I'm just, I'm just confessing to you my own spirit. Now, I want to convince them, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to. God, the Holy Spirit, is the only one who convinced them. Now, that doesn't mean that, do, that, that, that means aren't used. God does use means. He uses us. He uses, he uses evidences. He uses uh, uh, truth. He uses us speaking. He uses our lives. He uses all that stuff. So I'm not, I'm not exempting us from that. Please hear that. But at the end of the day, I cannot make my son or my daughters become Christians. I can't. But that doesn't relieve me of the responsibility I have to impart the truth to them, to live the truth before them. It doesn't exempt me at all. But my posture changes. My posture has changed. Well, all that to say, this, that, that sort of diagram um, has helped me immensely to figure out how, how to think about some of these things. And, and, and the, the concern, the, the huge concern I have with the progressive evangelical, and it's not just that one, but that one's unique now that's more, more immediate right now. Uh, but but I, I'm, I'm giving other examples that this isn't the first time that we've struggled with these things. 
So uh, l- let, me, let me talk about, uh, yes, uh, Chris, no, did you talk about, no, you, you didn't, you talked about historical theology, or no, canonicity, sorry, canonicity. Um, yes, you talked about systematic theology. So here's a question then. When we read the Bible, how do we understand it? How, what is the best way that we bring all of our faculties um, um, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, etc. What, what are the disciplines to which we give ourselves? So um, here are some just uh, quick sorts of ideas. Sometimes I think we live better than we know. Now there are times at which we talked yesterday that we know better than we live, right? And, and I acknowledge that here, but in the realm of knowledge, we live better than we know. Uh, For example, a child lives better than they know. They live life to the full with no understanding of many things about life. You think many kids are concerned about coronavirus today? Think about a five-year-old. They don't even think about it. Parents do. Um, But they're just living with reckless abandon, right? We live better than we know regarding our bodies unless we are sick. Then we haven't, so in other words, how how many of us know, I mean, even even think of coronavirus now. How many know the intricate details of, of what's going on? Uh, how many know about the, the, all the intricacies of, of what you eat and the digestive thing and the, the way your heart works? How many, how many know that? Well, n- not many, probably, I don't think. But we're living better than we know, right, in that regard. That's, what, that's the point that I'm making. It's also true in living the Christian life, generally in reading the Bible specifically. So, for example, let me just ask. Identify, identify. This gets to genre. Now, identify. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away... What's it from? Star Wars, science fiction. Star Wars, George Lucas, right? Okay, here's another one. Once upon a time. Yeah, how do you know? It's sort of intuitive. You've been taught, right? This is genre. You've been sort of taught. So, so you know that when, when a book starts, generally speaking, once upon a time, you're not looking for a historical account, right? Fair enough? Yeah, so once upon a time, it's a fable. Uh, what about this? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yeah. Tale of Two Cities. Historical novel. Mary Had a Little Lamb. A nursery rhyme, yeah. Uh, what about Abramson, Dr. Palmer, B. DDS, age 100, of St. Louis Park, formerly of Duluth, passed away March 8th. It's an obituary, right? It's a genre, right? You read this, you're not expecting to read a whole lot of other stuff, right? Uh, uh, You know? I just took this from the paper, by the way, so St. Louis Park is in Minnesota. Um, It was public, so I just took it. Yeah, it's an obituary. Uh, Culture. The customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Also, the characteristic features, etc. Yeah, it's a dictionary. Yep. Four score and seven years ago. Yeah, hi- historical. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Gettysburg Address. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. The road not taken. It's a poem, yeah. So, so the, the point is this. They're familiar and identifiable genres. And so, you know, I, I included them all here. The point is, you've learned how to read these, these different kinds of writings, haven't you? And you recognize that there are different kinds of rules governing the reading of each of these kinds of writings. So the fact is, when you're reading an obituary, you're not bringing, you're not bringing the conventions or the rules of reading a, 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 a history book, right? 
now, it's, it's, it's historical, but you're looking at, at it in a different way. Or you could have included, we could have included a, a telephone book, right? So you're ready to sit down and, and read this nice uh, novel, and you open up a telephone book. You're going to say, wow, that is really weird. Why? Because you're expecting certain kinds of writings, aren't you? Certain rules. Um, now, here's here's interesting sort of uh, exercise then. So familiar biblical texts identify the genre. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some, some would refer to it as historical poetry. Well, all I'm saying is, okay, so here we are, right? Uh, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? No, what do we do with that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So how do you read that literally? Or do you read it literarily? Yeah, uh, but it's just, so, so we bring it over and, and this is where there are going to be some disagreements because some are going to read a historical portion of the scripture as if it's poetic, as if it's not historical, etc. There, there are questions that are, that are asked. Uh, you know, Jonah, uh, there are just a whole, a whole bunch of others and, and um, here are some often misinterpreted. Uh, for example, judge not that you be not judged. That's, that, by the way, John 3.16 used to be the, the most quoted scripture. This one is the most quoted scripture now. Now, it's misquoted, but it's quoted, right? Um, at Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border. You remember that one? Bruce Wilkinson? Prayer of Jabez. It was really a prosperity gospel book is what it was. Um, you know, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, etc. I mean, train up a child, Proverbs 22.6, and the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, I would say this, that there, probably every year, every year I will read an account of someone who is reading a proverb like it's an epistle. And, and they will train up a child and they will, they will you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, and they're going to make sure that they're going to train up and not spoil, they'll kill the child. As I'm saying, about every year I'll read an account of someone who has taken that literally and, and killed their child. You've read the accounts. That's a, that's a painful misapplication, misunderstanding. Because if you misunderstand, you're going to misapply. So how, how do we understand this relationship then? And I, I just have just going to quickly go through these, but, you know, some we will look at uh, exegesis. What is exegesis? Bill, do you remember? Can you help us? Yeah, so you read out of the text. You're reading out of the text. How does that differ from eisegesis? You read into the text. And so it's just a, the, the Greek terms ex, out of, ace, into. We want to read out of the text what the author's intent was. Who's the ultimate author? God, right? And we want to read out of the text what he's intended to put in the text, right? And so, so some would say you, you, can't, you can't build any theology or doctrine at all, right? So it's not related at all. Uh, some would say, yep, you can, and, and it's a one-for-one. One. That, that's too much too, right? 
so that, that be, and th this is where then, you know, I would say, well, this is my view on, on baptism or this is my view on uh, soteriology. And because you differ, you deny the Bible, right? That, that would be making it one for one. The problem with this is who, who gets to be the ultimate determiner? Uh, and I think a healthier way is to say, you know, affirming the, the absolute inerrancy and authority of the Bible is, is the absolute. That's, the, that's the, the norming norm. But then we build and derive theology and doctrine from it. But the theology and doctrine is, it's, it's potentially revisable. The Bible isn't. But theology doctrine is. Now, it's not as if it's fluid, such that it, it's a, it, it can ebb and flow and change and this and that. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But, you know, um, for example, uh, 325, just as an example, in 325, the Council of Nicaea drafted the Nicene Creed. In 381, they revised it. Yeah, so for those who would say you can't ever change statements of faith, they're putting that on par with the Bible. No, statements of faith are responses at a certain period of time historically to issues of affirming biblical truth in a, in a present day in which some things may well be denied. And you have to affirm those things if you're going to affirm the, the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. I love Jude 3. You know, I wish that we could talk about the, the wonderful issues we share in salvation. Oh, that would be a delight, but I can't. I can't. The pressing need of the moment is we must contend earnestly for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. The new heavens and the new earth will give us eternity to talk about all those blessings that we share and experience in salvation, right? But that, that's, what, that's what Jude is, is, is telling us. And so this, this just reminds us that, that we affirm the absolute authority, the sola scriptura, and, and it alone is in that category. Here's another way, just how we move from Bible to theology to application. You know, there are some, and I would say this, that, that especially, just to be mindful, especially in this year of a presidential election, there are those that will want to equate the Bible with my theology, with my conclusions politically. And if you disagree with me over here, you're questionable theology and you're denying the Bible. That's too much. But, but there's a lot of conversation that happens that way. And I'm just saying, friends, we need, we need to be wiser than that. And so what I would say is this goes, in, it's in its, that's why it's all bolded. It's in its, it's in its own category. It's God and his word. And from that fundamental commitment, we, we wrestle with understanding, discerning those things that are of first importance, right? And then we, we live it out. We live it out. And, and this is where there will be some differences of understanding and, and application. And I mean, is there, just as an example, is there a singular policy that is biblical regarding immigration. Well, there's some that talk that way. Are there, is there more than one option? If you affirm the Bible, if you affirm the, could there be another, more than one option? Yeah, there could be. But see, we, we, we can't even talk about that over here. And this, what I was, Adam, what we were saying earlier is that I think often we, we, we categorize and then we dismiss. Um, and it's all too easy that rather than having a, a, I think, a charitable conversation among brothers and sisters on some of those realms, we, we 
we weaponize and demonize and, 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 and castigate. And, and um, I, I think the gospel not only compels us, not only commands us, it compels us to do better. Honestly. It's not just a command that we're given. It's the power that he gives us. And it's why, you know, when, 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 when there are church divisions and stuff, and maybe you've been through them, people leave, it's painful to me. You know why? Because the gospel that we say we believe, that is the power of God to change lives, that is the power of God that enables us to overcome differences, all of a sudden isn't. That's grievous to me. Think what it does to God who sent his son to die for us to create one new humanity. And, and that's a case where the way we live and what we speak of the gospel, going backwards, it's like a betrayal of the gospel. And I recognize, friends, you know, this is not the new heavens and the new earth. But we ought not to get to that point without grief. We just ought not to get there without grief. And I think all too often it's, it's not seen that way. So here's a, here's a better way. Understanding the, the disciplines. This is how to read the Bible and do theology well. It actually is one of the articles in the uh, NIV Zondervan Study Bible that was edited by Don Carson. Uh, it is now um, known as a Biblical Theology Study Bible, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. And he goes through and, and talks some disciplines. And um, uh, he says this. He starts this way. It's been said that the Bible is like a body of water in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. The youngest Christian can read the Bible with profit for the Bible's basic message is simple, but we can never exhaust its depth. After decades of intense study, the most senior Bible scholars find that they've barely scratched the surface. Although we cannot know anything with the perfection of God's knowledge, his out knowledge is absolutely exhaustive, yet because God has disclosed things, we can know those things truly. You see, what he's talking about here, he's, he's addressing the postmodern idea. That is, we don't have to know things exhaustively without knowing them truly. And we affirm that. We, we agree with that. Um, and so trying to make parts, sense of the parts of the Bible, and the Bible as a whole can be challenging. So what kind of study should be involved when any serious reader of the Bible tries to make sense of the Bible as a whole? Now, he lists five disciplines. I'll look through them. Now, some of you, you know this. It's going to be review. Others of you may not, um, but, but I think it's one of those things you do more intuitively. This is why I, I follow with sort of the uh, genres of once upon a time and in a land far away, you know, Mary had a little lamb. You identify those kinds of things. Well, here, these are sorts of disciplines that you probably do that you may not even know. So I'm just going to tell you that the way you're living, uh, I'll, I'll explain to you why you're living the way you're living. And, and he talks about five. And they all interrelate. Here they are. One is careful reading. This is exegesis. That is, it's, it's a careful reading of the Bible. We read the Bible asking questions about what did the author mean? What did the author intend? And, and we start small with the word in a, in a phrase, in a sentence, in a paragraph, in a book. In a, in a, in the, in, if, if you're going to read uh, Ephesians, you would then move to Paul's writings. And then you would move to the New Testament. And then you'd move to the whole Bible, right? And so you, you start small and you go, you go big. And it's a careful reading of the Bible, asking these questions, what does he author mean and sound principles of interpretation grammar and syntax and and words and what they mean and you know, these kinds of things right 
Uh, and here's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis, which Bill addressed earlier. That is, exegesis is digging into the Bible to discover its real meaning, whereas eisegesis is an interpretation, especially of Scripture, that expresses the interpreter's own ideas, bias, or, or the like, rather than meaning of the text. So we are coming in and, and hoisting our, our meaning, our intent on the text of Scripture. And let's acknowledge, this, that's what I said earlier, we all have, we all have interpretive biases, right? Let's just acknowledge them. And, let's, and this is where Grant Osborne, his book, The Hermeneutical Spiral, that we acknowledge them and we get, you know, we're never, we, we will never have exhaustive knowledge, right? That's God alone. But we can know truth truly and we can understand it more clearly as we grow more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're acknowledging here. Here's the second, biblical theology. What is that? Well, biblical theology answers, answers the question, how has God revealed his word historically and organically? For example, consider the theme of the shepherd. Is all God has said about shepherds contained in Psalm 23? No. Why does Psalm 23 for Christians and funerals or in a, wherever, why does it mean so much? You know why it means so much? Because it finds its fulfillment someplace else, in someone else. So let's go from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that would be, that would be meaningful enough, right? But, but that's not all that God in the Bible has to say about the shepherd. Think about Ezekiel 34. You remember 34, Chris? The shepherds were problematic. They were serving whom? Themselves. And what is it that God promised at that point? I will shepherd my people. I will shepherd my people. That's God's promise. There were bad shepherds. They were in it for themselves, but I, I will shepherd my people. We move on, and we come to John 10. John 10, 10. What, is, what do we hear from the lips of Jesus? I am the good shepherd. So th that, that's biblical theology. And now for us, we cannot read Psalm 23 apart from John 10. We can't. And that means we're reading the Bible as a Christian, not a Jew. If we stop in Psalm 23, we're reading it like a Jew, not a Christian. That's biblical theology, friends. That's just one example. Think about the temple. Think about the temple. The, re, the, the, the temple and, and, the, and, and, and some thinking uh, the, the, the reconstructed temple to offer sacrifices again. And you think of John chapter 2. Jesus says, How can that be? It took 46 years. What does, Jesus, what does John tell us? That is my body. Remember we talked promise fulfillment? It's biblical theology, friends. There's a third, historical theology. What is historical theology? We've talked about that a few times. It answers the question, how have people in the past understood the Bible? What have Christians thought about exegesis and theology? And more specifically, how has Christian doctrine developed over the centuries, especially in response to false teachings? Um, um, so when we think about this, how many of how many you have ever asked the question, um, well, let me ask this first. How many of you have ever, in preparation for teaching or preaching, pulled a commentary off the shelf? Of course you have. So you know what? You're doing some of this stuff, right? You're doing some of this stuff. Um, and, and in the commentary, it, it may well make reference to Calvin. Well, wait a minute. What's that? In a commentary, it's, a, it's historical theology. Uh, what did... We've done some of that, right? What did Augustine say? What did Augustine say about the Word of God? Uh, what about Irenaeus, who preceded uh, Augustine? See, we're doing some of that, aren't we? What did, what did the Reformers think about the formal principle and the material principle? 
That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here. It's, it's not, this is not the absolute authority. It submits to the absolute authority, the Word of God, but it plays a role, all right? There's a, there's a fourth. Systematic theology plays a role, a very important role. It answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach about certain topics? Or put it another way, what is true about God and His universe? So this is where you get God, man, Scripture, Christ, you, you get these larger categories like that that are going to be slightly different than a shepherd, the temple, the covenant, the etc. That's, that's going to be biblical theology categories, but, but systematic theology is the, is the culmination, just so you know, bear with me here now, it's the careful reading of Scripture, it's the putting the Bible together by biblical theology, it's being aware of what what's the church has understood this through the years, and historical theology then applies it into the lives of God's people now. It's the application. is the intent. It's wrestling with the application. And by the way, just so you know, as soon as a, as a systematic theology textbook is published, it's a historical theology textbook. It's just how they function. But this is not all there is to say. Systematic theology. There's, a, there's another one. And this is... The, the formal application, pastoral theology. That is, it answers the question, how should humans respond to God's revelation? Sometimes that is spelled out by Scripture itself. Other times it builds on inf inferences of what Scripture says. Practical theology, or pastoral, I'm sorry, theology, practically applies the other four disciplines. Listen to this, and this is where I think we need, we need, we need the both end. And often we've said the bifurcation, or we have this part, we don't have that part, and, and yet we need the both end. Here's what, what, what Don Carson says, that so much, we need, that the pastoral theology applies the other four disciplines so much so that the other disciplines are in danger of being sterile and even dishonoring to God unless tied in some sense to the responses God rightly demands of us. So friends, if we, if, we, if we do all of our homework and we're not, we're not wrestling with how this applies in the people of God, my own life first, right, because I'm, I'm first among equals as a pastor, but if I'm not wrestling with that stuff, and I, I agree with Don, it becomes sterile and almost meaningless. Now, here's another problem, and that is if we're only focusing on this part, apart from a biblical foundation, you're going to see that's going to be problematic as well. As Francis Schaeffer would say, that person has both feet firmly planted in midair. No foundation, right? And so it's, it's all of them working together. And that's, that's then when we're preparing to preach, we're preparing to teach, this is what we do. And I would say often people will come to you, people will come to you with this issue first and foremost. Uh, Pastor, we're struggling with infertility. Well, wait a minute, let's do our careful reading of Scripture and let's do our biblical theology and let's do our history. No, you're going to deal with it personally and existentially as we had, you know we had talked earlier you're going to deal with it there but you're going to ground it back over here and this is where a faithful ministry of the word of god in all the life of the church is absolutely critical so that at the end of the day when you are at a hospital to a dear saint who's transitioning from this life to the next you can be there and 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 you don't have to now teach or instruct the truths that this person needs to, the assurance this person needs as they pass from, from life to death to life again because the foundation's there. 
the time that you're there is sort of like Job's friends, isn't it? Your presence will speak volumes. Your presence will speak, actually, in, in the lives of, of many, your presence will speak truth, the truth that you've communicated, the gospel that you've proclaimed. And I'm not saying that just, just be your presence, sort of like this, this, you know, if you have to use words, you know, if you preach the gospel, always have to use words, you do it, but that, that's, a, that's not inaccurate. But that you've, you've been faithful in preaching and teaching. You can read scripture, and, and they've got a foundation. They've got that foundation. And that's, that's then what, what we have done. The faithful ministry of the word enables us, us with these things. Here then is just a, a, a big, I took this out of uh, hermeneutical spiral. So you start with your passage, the word study, grammar, all this other, and then you move to the context and a section and a book and a writer and the testament, and then the biggest one would be out there, and that's the Bible. So it just, it just gives you an example of how we move from the smaller to the larger. This is sort of filling out. This would be the careful reading part. This would be the careful reading part, right? This isn't, this isn't new to you. I mean, maybe what I'm presenting is somewhat uh, new form, new terms, whatever. But th this is how you approach it, right? This is how you approach reading and, and studying the Bible. Uh, here's another one which uh, is not accurate. That is, it's a circle. It's really not a circle that one leads to the other that leads to the other. And this would be sort of a foundationalist approach. Um, and and it's, it's a little bit too simplistic in how how texts actually work. Um, and I think a better way to look at this would be, a, a, and this comes out of Carson as well, it's called a feedback loop. And so here you have all of them, you know, the, the five disciplines, and this is then what it looks like. So, so in other words, do you start here and then go here and then go here and then go here and then go here and, and then once we get there, then we've, we've finished? Or is it more like this? Now, notice the Bible has, has, it's an absolute authority. I'm just going to do these next maybe 15 slides pretty quickly because you'll, you'll get the point. Notice. You see what's happening? There, there, it's, it's just, this is, this is how pastoral ministry works, friends. It's how ministry works right? It, it's, they're, they're all intersecting with, with one another. Even, and the, but the Bible is, is absolutely foundational, right? And then we acknowledge that there are some pre-understandings, presuppositions. We talked about that and some of the progressive evangelical and some of the implications of that that's going to affect some of this stuff. Um, and so then this is the Bible, is the center point. We acknowledge this we have these, we want it to be faithful, but they're also then the follow-up of these other disciplines. This, I think, becomes helpful for us to understand how we approach the reading and studying, preaching and teaching of the Bible. So, any questions about that? Yeah. That's why it's that way. Yep, and that's why it's there. Yep, yep, absolutely. And that's, that's then the, sp the spiral idea. Yeah, and so we are always continually being reformed according to the Word of God. That was one of the reformational principles, and it was the church 
but we are as well. And so we come with them, and we read it, and we're refined by the Bible and, and ongoingly. And there will come a time we see in a mirror how today? Dimly. There will come a day when we will see face to face. Yeah. Other questions, comments? I find this helpful personally. And, you know, for some it's just a reminder, right? Uh, for others, maybe it's the first time you've heard it. But I think it, it's helpful. And, and when you now think back to some teachings you have heard or pre- sermons you've heard, y- you can now place when the pastor said, uh, by the way, the C- Calvin or Wesley said this. Well, you, you can now, you've got a category in which to understand some of those things. Okay. Um, there are a number of things that I want to I look at now, uh, and I'm just going to walk through them because I'll give you the notes, and then we'll pause on a few of these issues, right? Uh, we've got about uh, 40 minutes or so, um, and this one here, we've talked about this often, uh, Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah. You know why that title is on this slide is because that comes right out of Article 4 of our Statement of Faith. doesn't make it right, but I think we have captured the critical truth of the Scriptures uh, that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. Um, and, and I've said a number of times that Jesus is the hermeneutical lens by which the Bible is understood. Um, and I think if, if in our statement of faith we've got any key lens by which the Bible is read, this is it. It's a, it's a Christocentric focus of, of the Bible. And I just, well, I've just included all. Uh, Christ is the interpretive lens through which the Bible is understood. Let me just say this. He is, not just was, the yes of all of God's promises. We just affirm that. You know, another, another interesting thing, someone has talked about, um, um, you know, the whole issue of the law. We've talked about that, Mike. We've talked about that. And the interesting thing is, there is a sense in which he is the end of the law. What in the world, Romans 10, 4, does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that now that law is no longer needed. It's, it's that he is the fulfillment of that which the law addressed. And, and, that, that, and, and that's why Jesus would say um, that um, um, I've not come to abolish but to fulfill. I mean, in Matthew 5, 17 and 20, it's, it's why he would say something like that. It's also fascinating to me that in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 4, that we Christians who, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we fulfill the law. That is crazy. That is absolutely crazy. You think about that? What's the sense? Well, p- part of it is, remember, it's required for all of us to fulfill the law. Who fulfilled it on our behalf? The Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be his name, right? And by faith, all of his righteousness is, is imputed to us. And, and, and no, it's, 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 a, it's a declarative reality. It's, it's, not, it's not Roman Catholic. Catholicism in, in the sense that, that, that we are made righteous like Christ, but it's imputed. It's, it's declared. We're declared righteous, right? And that becomes absolutely critical. Um, and there are just so many things uh, uh, that we could talk about, but he is the interpretive lens. Now, what about the authority of the Bible? I'm just going to go through a number of them as I'm saying to you. If you, you've got a question, just pause. Um, the authority of the Bible. I, and this, you know, do we affirm evidences? I think, you know, when I was coming through seminary, there were all of the evidences for the support of the Bible, and, 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 and I affirm that. I affirm the authority of the Bible, and I affirm the external evidences that are there for the authority of the Bible. But at the end of the day, what's going to convince me of the authority of the Bible? 
it's, it's not the evidences. The evidences are going to come together. It's sort of like, remember Irenaeus? So am I going to see a king or a fox? Or a dog? And whether I'm going to see a king or a, a fox or a dog is dependent upon who's, who's opening my eyes. Who's helping me? Now, all of the evidences are used. But, but, I, but here are a couple of thoughts for us to think about. Um, I, I don't think many of us, because I think evangelicals were concerned a little bit about some of the, the higher critical, historical critical methodology, that we needed to use the same methodological approach that the secular person did to validate our view. And so we were afraid of saying anything to the effect that, listen, it, it requires the Holy Spirit. Uh, that has changed that over the last number of, of, of years, well, more recently amongst evangelicals, but it's not, it's not new, it's not, it's not fresh. So, for example, here's Calvin. Calvin writes that we can know that Scripture is the Word of God only by faith and that its certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. This isn't new to us, um, but, but it is new to us. <laughs> Um, here's John Owen. John Owen concludes that the Holy Spirit's inward persuasion is not a testimony to us of the word as though it were another word from God about the Bible, but by the word. That is, you have to think about that one. It's the word of God that, that convinces us of what he's saying. The Westminster Confession of Faith confesses that however much, quote, we may be moved and induced by arguments, evidence, and the testimony of others that Scripture is God's Word, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. At the end of the day, Westminster Confession, we need no other word. The Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture is enough. So this is then when you hear about the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that this, this sort of gets, gets to that. Um, now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't use evidence as friends. He does. But this also means this. Friends, one of the greatest com com companion pieces, one of the, the critical, absolutely critical pieces of your sermon preparation is prayer. And it's not just prayer that God will enable you but it's also prayer that God will enable them. Because no matter how gifted you are, you know what? You cannot make dead bones live. You can't even make living bones move. God does. I think that often, I'm going to use a term, and it's too strong. We are functional atheists or functionally nominalists when it comes to believing that God will use his word and his spirit to change lives. He uses means. Friends, be faithful. Pray that God will give us the strength, the great, all that stuff. But don't forget to pray that for the hearer. And, and, and not only that, let me tell you what that does. That gives you hope. Tell you what, if, if, if I've got to make the change in people's lives, I'm going to despair. Won't you? I mean, come on! But this, this gives us hope. God not only can, but He does. And the fact that He does, I look in the mirror that He has. 
So I just, I think, you know, when we think about the authority of the Scriptures, friends, don't overlook this. Infallibility and inerrancy, we talked about that yesterday. Um, I will just simply look at this. Uh, I'm going I'm to say this. Uh, it, it comes out of uh, it, that infallibility is a stronger term. Uh, let me quote John Frame. The inerrancy of Scripture, here's Frame's brief summary. Inerrant means simply without error. Infallible denies the possibility of error. In those senses, I would say that Scripture is both inerrant and infallible. It is inerrant because it is infallible. There are no errors because there can be no errors in the divine speech. So th we talked about that yesterday. This is, this is the quotation from John Frame. He's not the only one who's saying it. I like how he says it, and I think he has said it very helpfully. And this is one of the books that I mentioned earlier uh, in the bibliography. Yeah, Ben. They do. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement. Uh, and I'm, I'm doing all I can to correct it. Okay, because yeah, infallible is that God's word cannot fail. It's never turned before. It's often more. Yeah. Uh, if you want a copy of this, do you have, do you have the book? Do you have the book? What's, uh, Frame? No, I don't. I was um, going to take a picture because it's I, too much. Yeah. Um, I. I could send you this chapter. It's a chapter in the book if you're interested. Um, I, I will not infringe copyrights, any of that sort of stuff. But uh, anyway, all that to say, it's, it's very good. Mike's maybe got a copy of the book. Uh, that one I don't. Okay. He would talk about similar there, but anyway. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that the infallibility is, is grounded in the character and nature of God. Inerrancy is the result of God's speech recorded. It doesn't accomplish, it doesn't fail to accomplish its purpose. I don't, I don't, and that is a common, in fact, it's, it's actually an evangelical conviction. That's, where, that's why you're, and, and, and I, I think it needs to be corrected. Yeah, I think it needs to be corrected. It's not that his God will, it's not that God's word will return void. That, that's not, I mean, it's, we, we affirm that. I think that's not necessarily embedded in, in affirming infallibility. Yep. Yeah. 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 That John is? No, no. In our use of it. Um, maybe. I mean, some of it is it, it's it's without error, and if it's without error, it'll accomplish what it's promised. I mean, so you know, it could it could be further embedded in inerrancy, which then expands the definition of inerrancy as well. Other thoughts? I'm sorry you've got to leave. Thanks for being here. Was it something I said? Okay. Or not said. Or not said. Yeah. I'll get it to it tomorrow.
Yeah, okay, let's, let's go there. You want to go there? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me say this. One of the one of the driving factors amongst people today is social media. So, um, at, and I was talking with Caleb earlier. And when people raise issues, you have to delineate pastorally: is this issue being raised intellectually or experientially? So, so in other words, when, I, when we talk about the, the, the person, the character of God, that, that, you know, there's evil and that sort of thing, is this an intellectual question that you're asking? Or is this an existential, personal reason for asking the question? And the reason for which asking one asks a question will end up pastorally different places in how you respond. So we have to, we have to process that. Similarly with here. And what I would say is, is uh, YouTube and, and Google and all that sort of stuff, what, what's out there is raising questions that most people don't even have, I'm sorry, didn't even have 15 years ago. Now all of a sudden, they hear it, and it becomes their question as well. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just saying it's the reality in the day in which we live. Same thing with textual criticism. So they'll go on and, and uh, read Bart Ehrman or, or listen to a YouTube uh, clip of Bob, Bob, Bart Ehrman or whatever. I was, I was just reading an article about Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 Here's what's happening. Uh, what's happening is that there are extra biblical documents that are driving. You want to talk about a lens that drives and determines what the Bible can and can't mean. It's extra biblical literature, particularly ancient Near Eastern literature. And so the fact that there are different creation accounts, the fact that there are different flood accounts, the fact that there, et cetera, and they become definitive by which then you try to interpret the flood in Genesis or creation in Genesis. Well, I mean, I, I'm thinking of your and my discussion, Brian. I'm thinking the rest. So hang on and let's get the textual credit. No, no, it's okay. It's a great question. It's not, it's, it's important. Um, but let me, let me jump through here and get, get through some others. And, um, and inerrancy, uh, here's what it means. When all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. It comes from a classic uh, uh, definition, John Feinberg, uh, 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 in inerrancy. It was a book edited by Geisler, but it's uh, by Paul Feinberg, who was one of the Trinity professors uh, years ago. Um, uh, here's, a, here's a section on the autographa or the original manuscripts. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about this yesterday. I'm not, I'm not going to uh, look at it uh, uh, much. Uh, I, will, I will start here. Evangelicals maintain the doctrine of original inerrancy not as an apologetic artifice, but on the sound theological grounds, one, the inspiration of copyists and the perfect transmission of Scripture have not been promised by God, and two, the extraordinary quality of God's revealed word must be guarded against arbitrary alteration. 
The importance of the original errancy is not that God cannot accomplish his purpose except through a completely errorless text, but that without it we cannot consistently confess the veracity of God, be assured of, of scriptural promise of salvation, or maintain the epistemological authority and theological axiom of sola scriptura. For errors in the original, unlike those in transmission, would not be correctable in principle. That's why affirming the original manuscripts is pretty significant. And what I'm saying is we affirm that statement not, not merely in the dark. We're not flying by the seat of our pants when we make that affirmation. There are, there are good reasons for making that affirmation uh, about the original manuscripts. And what happens then with the textual criticism, it confirms that we possess a biblical text that is substantially identical with the autographer or the original manuscripts. That's what the discipline of textual criticism allows us. Um, and, and here's the other thing. Uh, it's not unprovable. It is not undermined by the use of amenuenses or Paul using tertius. The fact that Paul used tertius, someone, a scribe, to write the letter doesn't deny inerrancy, right? Uh, that's, that's what it's saying. Um, it's not, uh, you know, contravened by the New Testament use of the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That's what that means. Um, so the doctrine of original errancy can be commended to all believers who are sensitive to the authority of the Bible as the very word of God and who wish to propagate it as such today. And these are some fundamental uh, truths that I think it's important for us to affirm. Um, it, it also, as I said yesterday, the fact that, that we don't have the originals, uh, we ought to worship them. And, and uh, furthermore, that because God intended that this was to, uh, it was through Abram that the nations would be blessed. That, that this was uh, missiological from the beginning. It was a mission emphasis from the beginning, and, and this, this allowed that to happen. Now, here, here are just some, some facts. There are 5,700 Greek manuscripts. There are 19,000 Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Georgian, uh, Armenian, and, and Ethiopic. That is to say, the, it's translated into these languages. 27,000, I'm sorry, 19,000. 2,450 lectionaries. That is the early church Bible reading guides. So you look at all those numbers. 86,000 early church fathers' quotations. If all of our manuscripts of the New Testament disappeared tomorrow, almost the entire New Testament could be re reconstructed from their writings. That's not a small matter. Which means original writings, it, they can be virtually reconstructed. A comparison? Uh, look at the Iliad. There are about 2,500 manuscripts in existence today, the earliest from 400 B.C. But, but hang on, hang on. It was written in 900 B.C., a gap of 500 years. And that's not questioned by secular scholars. They reconstruct the text. And they do it pretty confidently. And notice the numbers and notice the gap. You look at these numbers and some of these manuscripts, they are within 50 years of, of the historical event. And someone would say, well, that's 50 years, come on. Well, uh, 50 years in, a, in, a, in an oral society, and, it's, it's, and some of it's not even 50 years, it's passed on, propagated, uh, it's not a long time. Le legends, when people are still living, legends, don't, legends typically aren't created. That is the legend of Jesus' resurrection. No, wait a minute, that wasn't a legend. That was historical. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? You don't believe me? Go ask these folks. Some of them are still here. They're still living, right? 
So here then, the, the notion of textual criticism, what is it? Uh, it is the study of copies of any written work which the autograph, the original, is unknown with the purpose of discerning the original text. Uh, and when applied to the New Testament, it is a task of attempting to restore the original text of the New Testament Greek documents. That, that's just, that's the nature of it. And I, and I, I shared with you, you can, you can find it in, in your footnotes in, in the Bible. You'll find some of those variations there where there might be some questions, but, but that, doesn't, that doesn't question or undermine the original text. We affirm that. There are two, and this is, this is, I think, where the rub comes to some degree, and that is, so which translation then should I use? And, and some of this is the translations are not, with, with, with minor exceptions, but the translations are all using similar Greek and Hebrew texts. But they, have, they follow different conventions for the purposes of the translation. That's going to be the differences here. So, formal equivalence means that the translation attempts to retain the wording and syntax of the original language as much as possible. What translation might that be? King James would do that. NASB would do that. Yep. So, uh, functional equivalence uh, means that the translation gives a higher priority to the semantics of the original, bringing out the force of original text regardless of how it is worded. What might that be? NIV. Yep, would be one like that. Um, and, and I think that, that's then helpful. So then what happens is when someone is, say, for example, reading the NIV, expecting it to be formal equivalence, what are they going to conclude? It's a bad translation. Who said that? Yeah, it's a bad translation. Is it? Well, if it's intended to be a, a, a formal equivalence, it's a bad translation. But it really wasn't intended to be that, right? And one could say the same thing with, you know, it's, you're looking for functional equivalency and you're looking for the, uh, let's say, ESV or NASB or whatever. That's a bad translation, right? Well, wait a minute. But, but all I'm saying is, you know, because we know, we, we know kind of little about this stuff, that, that sort of language about translations is often communicated, isn't it? It's not overly helpful. So what is the purpose of the translation? What kind of translation is it? What is its purpose? And it's included in the front of your Bible. It'll, it'll, it'll tell you what sort of the, what, what was followed uh, of, of the, 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 the goal of the translation. Um, uh, here's Dan Wallace. It's important to recognize, however, that all translation is interpretation. The reason is that the syntax and lexical mapping in one language never match exactly that of another language. Yes? I do. Yeah, I do. In fact, I use a few. Um, so, you know, I would use... You know, I've got NAS, NASB on my, my uh, uh, Logos, uh, NASB. Um, I like the, just to check the NKJV uh, because people still use it, so it's worthwhile to, to know what that. Um, also, I will do the ESV. Um, I will do the NIV. I'll do the NET, the NET Bible, uh, which is uh, done mostly by Dallas Seminary, but, but it's, it's helpful with notes and stuff. And also uh, the NLT, the New Living Translation, which is different than the Living Bible. The Living Bible was a paraphrase. The New Living Translation is a translation. So that fits on the spectrum. So, um, yes, I do. Uh, and I do for that reason. And, you know, it depends. If, if I'm my, my through the Bible reading, I don't. I'll read a different translation different years. So I've, I've read the NIV. I've read the, the Christian Standard Bible, which is the update of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. That's the SBC uh, translation. I've uh, done the NIV 2011, uh, uh, et cetera. So I, 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 I typically will 
read different ones in my through the Bible uh, reading. But when I'm looking at different texts and things, I will, I've got those open on my, on my screen. Mm-hmm. And, and this is part of the reason why. Yeah. Uh, the context determines the meaning. A so-called word-for-word translation is quite impossible for anything more than a short phrase or a sentence. That's just the reality of it, right? It's just the reality of it. And we could, on the one hand, say, well, what would be the closest thing then to a word-for-word? Well, uh, let's, let's think about... Um, um, I'm sorry? Yeah, a literal translation. Um, um, the, the word eludes me right now. No, 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 no. Uh, that's off the chart. Uh, there's a reason, because it's a paraphrase. Um, what I'm thinking is about is the, uh, it, it is word for word. You've got the, the, the Greek text going on the top, and then you get... Yes, of course. I'm sorry, the word eluded me. But the interlinear, right? But you know what? The interlinear, read, read the English. Does it make any sense at all? It doesn't make any sense at all. Now, if you're in the Hebrew, you're going to have to go this way. <laughs> or am I, am I backwards? Um, yeah, so, you know, let, let's just acknowledge, all I'm saying, friends, is let's just acknowledge some of these things. That's what I'm saying. Let's just acknowledge them, right? Um, and in fact, here, here's the expression. Translators are traitors. The meaning was this. You know what? You don't simply translate word for word. Every translator, every translation has had to make some translational decisions, right? Let's just be honest about it, right? And, and that's the intent of, of that statement. Now, here's, here's sort of an example then, right? So the original text that we are affirming, and then, you know, we've got these men, and I'm just focusing on the New Testament right now. You get these various New Testament manuscripts. You get the various versions that we talked about. You get the various church fathers, etc. And you get all of the combination of these things, and from those, you then can, can construct and reconstruct, and this is not just unique to the New Testament, friends, or the Old Testament. This is how ancient literature is approached. It's not, it's not new. It's not novel, right? Um, but we're affirming this, and then, and then it, there's a reconstruction of it, and that's, that's known as the, the discipline of textual criticism. Now, here then is an example of a Bible translation comparison chart. So the word, so over here, it's word for word, thought for thought. Now, notice, Andy, you'll find... The message. Now, I just, I just copied and pasted this off the, off the web, right? So I just, I found it. But, but the point is, over here, when you start going over here, here's the Living Bible, but it's not the NLT, right? This is a paraphrase, most often used for devotional reading, gaining device insights, etc. But I remember when the Living Bible came out in the, was it 70s? Yeah, you know, I, I, I remember reading I read through it. And, but, but so here we are. So about, about here, um, this one was the gender neutral, you might remember. Now, the NIV is not gender neutral. Some would claim that it is. It's not. What you'll find, what you'll find is that, as an example, the ESV, in comparison, ESV, on that issue, the ESV will state uh, uh, brothers, and then in a footnote, Brothers Adelphoi in the plural refers to brothers and sisters in a family. The NIV will put it in the text and say brothers and sisters, and in the footnote say this is Adelphoi and means etc. Now, so then the question is, which one's biblical? 
Well, you see what I'm saying? That, that's, that's just an example of something that was done that describes the differences. So notice over here, had I gone to the next slide, the interlinear term would have come up. But you've got interlinear over here, but it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It's just way, it just doesn't work. Now, on the other hand, you could say Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, right? Um, so here, uh, uh, the NASB, the uh, AMP. What is the AMP? Yeah, okay, yep. Um, and then you ESV, KJV, NKJV. This is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Um, and it would be similar with the Christian Standard. Here's the NRSV, uh, the New American Bible, the NIV, the NLT, and then about here. Um, uh, so this, I think, is a helpful grid. And, you know, it might not be... What I don't want to do is, is call people's questions about their love for the Bible and the authority of the Bible into question at all. So you have to discern whether or not this kind of a discussion could be had in a context of a Sunday school class or whatever, Brian. Um, but it still doesn't change the fact that they're reading their Bible. And the thing is, is to point that out to them, just like I did brothers and sisters or brothers. Um, and, and, and understanding, I think at least helping to understand the different translation purposes so that then the rhetoric of that's a bad translation, that's an unbiblical translation, or whatever the case might be, sometimes that's just over the edge. It's just over the edge. Chris. Byzantine or the majority text? Yeah, well, that's, that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a majority text. Most, no, um, most, most these days, uh, we were talking about this yesterday, most of them are eclectic. So you look at the, the, the United Bible Society, uh, five, uh, you look at uh, Nestle Elant 28, and they're eclectic. So, so most have gone in that direction now um, um, rather than a majority text. There are still that some that would do that, but not many. Yeah. Uh, here's another example, uh, you know, English, English, just the English Bible overview, word for word, thought for thought, and it just, so here you get the, this one is more recent, the, the, the Christian Standard Bible, you get those up here, and, and you get Tyndale's New Testament down here, and anyway, it's just another, another example of, uh, you, you'll be able to see these, I'll, I'll, you know, give you the notes and stuff, but it, it's, it's helpful when we think about some of these things. Any other questions on that? Brian, I know we didn't get to dig down a whole lot deeper, but okay, um, Yep, I'm going there. We get till 12, don't we? Yep, so uh, I'm just going to walk through it. Illumination, the Holy Spirit, perspicuity clarity, You're not going to read it. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just telling you so you can read it. I'm just, I'm just sort of giving you the lay of the land, the map. So when you get the notes, you can read through them. Um, Perspicuity is that it, it's clear, it's intelligible. Scripture can be understood by God's people. Uh, I take this from 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith. That's a good book, by the way. That's a great companion to your book, Greg. Um, uh, elder Training. Uh, this is one of the, I think it's a very uh, helpful one that could be worth your while to consider using with elders or, or others. It's, it's quite good. Uh, two years ago. Yep, two years ago. Um, here's this notion of Im 
imperious ignorance. And, and the point is this, on this one, you can read it. I talked about it yesterday, but the point is this, that, that because, because I'm ignorant of the text, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demand that you're ignorant of the text too. Because there are so many scholars that have so many different views on these things, I'm ignorant of what, what it really means, and, and I'm going to mandate that of you as well. And Michael Ovi helpfully uses, uh, he takes the Pro-Aryan Creed, uh, Sirmium 357, as an example of, mm, that's not so helpful. It's not so healthy. In fact, there was a response. The response, Hilary of Poitiers, uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, um, they described it as blasphemia. Blasphemy. Two things emerge quite painfully. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll summarize it here. Um, the Compulsory Ignorance Act of Sirmium in 357. First, the coercive nature of the claims to ignorance or on clarity. Friends, that is happening a lot with the Bible today, especially in moral issues. There's something strongly unilateral about the claims of Sirmium. Why should something that is allegedly subjectively unclear to me be judged by me as unclear for you too? And that, that's sort of what's demanded. And individual expressivism and that I'm my own authority, it, it, it all makes sense, right? Second, there's, there's the way that, that coercive claim, those coercive claims were far from value neutral. This is not just a take, friends. It's far from value neutral but actually carried strong agendas of their own. And then Carson uh, comments on this as well, and I think it's, it's quite helpful. The sufficiency of Scripture, the, the Scriptures are sufficient, um, and we, we affirm that, uh, practical applications. Um, uh, I'm going to end in this way, but I want to deal with canonicity here first. Um, canonicity. Um, what is the main criteria? So, Chris, if, if, if you know, someone were to come to you, what is the main criteria of canonicity? Well, there are four major reasons. You don't have to respond, but, but you're that one to ask the question. But there are four major reasons that we would affirm canonicity. One, the authority of Jesus. So, Jesus, not just looking backwards, affirming the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, right? But Jesus himself uh, uh, you know, that the New Testament is the fulfillment of, of that which was promised in the Old Testament. So it makes sense that he, you know, it's, 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 the canon is, is because of Jesus, right? Uh, secondly, that, and it's not like the squirrel in the tree, all right? It's just, it's slightly different. You know the story. The squirrel in the tree. It's got to be Jesus. No, no, no. Uh, so, it, yes, it's, it's Jesus-centered, but not because, not like the squirrel in the tree, all right? Secondly, conformity to the rule of faith. What is the rule of faith? You know what? Irenaeus spelled out some of the grounds of the rule of faith, and it was the rule of faith that allowed him to say, this is the picture of a king, whereas this is a picture of a dog. So there were some, there were some the rule of faith, which was Trinitarian, that was fundamental for their hermeneutic of reading the Bible. It was the rule of faith. Anyone heard of the rule of faith? Yep. Third, apostolicity, that is thus antiquity. So, so there, it was related to the, to the apostles and, and some of it is, is dated uh, age-wise, etc. And then fourth, acceptance and usage by the church or churches. And the Vincentian canon in the 5th century, that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. And that then, chapter 4, the co comment... Uh, Comminatory, um, 
is one, another one of those pieces of, of, the, of the canon. Now, in some, the church did not create the New Testament canon, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, but rather acknowledged the documents that God had inspired as authoritative for the faith and practice of Christians, that which was orthodox. It was the gospel in these texts that God used to birth the church. So, so we, we start here, and then we, we think through these issues from that foundation, and there are reasons for canonicity. Now, I would say, Chris, that I, I do think this is, this is one of those things where, you know, uh, there are evidences, and yet, and yet there, are also, there are also questions that with humility we need to acknowledge. But for me, it's not, it's not the, my, my, my humility does not, does not result in uh, complete ignorance, Right? Uh, there, there, there are reasons, and 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 there are people like the Roman, well, the Roman Catholic Church, and then there are others like uh, Bart Ehrman that have, I think, done significant damage on some of these issues of undermining and calling into question and and that sort of thing. Now, biblical references, I I just include some of these. Jesus' view of Scripture. Have any of you ever heard of the Tanakh? The Tanakh. Just so you know, the Tanakh is a is an abbreviation for the Torah. That is the law the Nevi'im, that is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, that is the writings. That's a Hebrew language. And so the Tanakh, if someone, a, a Jewish person were to refer to the Tanakh, that's what he's referring to, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In the New Testament, the scripture, of course, we get First, first Timothy referring to earlier writings, don't tread the grain, etc., which is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. And you get, get Peter referring to Paul's writings, the graphe, that are hard to understand. And so you get some of these uh, internal evidences of, of that there, there's a recognition, there's a, there's a collection of, of writings, of, of books, etc., And so you see some of that. And then the other thing, as I read this morning from Hebrews chapter 1, that there's a Christocentric or a Christotelic or a Christopromise. That is, the Christopromise is from the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. Uh, the Telic, it finds its end. Christ is the end of the law. Romans 10.4 uh, is where that would be. Or a Christocentric, that is a Christ-centeredness that, that, that brings it all together. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit, the promise given, uh, he will bring to mind those things that were important for the, for the, for the disciples uh, uh, to, to, to remember. And, and does that apply as well to the canon? I, I, I believe so. Um, it's, not, it's not completely inappropriate to apply that to the canon. At least uh, I, I do. Uh, it, 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 the canon does not fall outside the purview of the, of the providence of God. 8037, 39th Paschal letter of Athanasius. He was writing a Easter letter. Uh, it was con- and, and it contained the 27 books of the New Testament representing the eastern part of the Mediterranean world. 397, the Council of Carthage recognized the same 27 books of the New Testament representing the western part of the Mediterranean world. So you can see that Athanasius spells this out, 367, 397, the council spelled it out. But, but the, well, let me just continue on. So you're seeing that there's a recognition of these things here. What about the Old Testament books? Jesus affirmed them. That, that, was, that, that was affirmed by the Lord Jesus himself. And then, of course, you get the Apocrypha and these books that consisted of the Apocrypha. This was not in the Hebrew Bible. It was included in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, and that's the basis upon which Jerome did his translation, just so you know. That's for the Latin Vulgate included the, 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 the Apocrypha. The Roman Catholic Church that adopted officially the Vulgate in the 16th century 
included Jerome's writing in Latin in 405, the Vulgate. You know what the Vulgate means? Vulgar, common. Um, but all that to say, um, Jerome, Jerome under duress included them. He didn't want them included. But he was being compensated for his translation. He included them. But that then was picked up in the 16th century by the Roman Catholic Church, and it, it's, it's included in their, in their Bible. Oh yes, that 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 was well. That that hasn't uh, what was done in Trent, 1545, 1563 hasn't been reneged. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, it was their Bible. Mm -hmm. Sure, uh, just because it's quoted doesn't in the Bible doesn't mean, and, and the Bible is inspired and errant authoritative, doesn't make Enoch, the whole book of Enoch, uh, inspired and errant authoritative as well. And so pretty simple, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't put it on, that, on par with that. The Reformers denied it, but they, they considered it devotional or help, helpful reading, but it was not on par with Scripture. So the Roman Catholic Church, and here you have it, uh, they accepted the Apocrypha as the canon, it's Council of Trent. Uh, here's uh, what was helpful from Geisler that I think distinguishes between the two. That is, the church determines canon. This would be the Roman Catholic view as opposed to the church discovers the canon. The church is the mother of the canon, whereas the church is the child of the canon. The church is the magistrate of the canon, whereas the church is a minister of the canon. The church regulates the canon. The church recognizes the canon. The church is judge of the canon, whereas the church is a witness of the canon, and the church is master of the canon, whereas the church is a servant of the canon. I would commend reading this, Chris, uh, in, in Geiser. It's very helpful. This, this part would be very helpful. It would be worth your while. Yeah, and I can help you get it if you need to, if you need it. Ah, and then we get the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, and they are not... Um, and here's uh, sort of a statement. You know, that they, this, these have gotten a lot of mileage as of late. Uh, but the Gospel of Judas is a Gnostic document. It did not pass the test of antiquity. To antiquity. It did not pass the test of apostolicity. And it did not test, pass the test of Catholicity. That's not the Roman Catholic. It's just the universal. That is that which is believed. The Vincentian canon, believed everywhere, always, and by all. Yeah, so you, you, here's an application of that in light of uh, the Gospel of uh, Judas or the Gospel of Thomas. Now, um, this is a pretty significant one, and we've got just a few minutes. Um, I think I'll just tell you what this is about. I think, you know, back to the issue of word and spirit, um, I am concerned that we have bifurcated the word and the spirit. They're two, they're two different parts. Rather than saying the, the, the spirit works in and through the word. So rather than being two separate entities, and we can do that, you know, we can, just like you can, you, can, you can study various attributes of God, but you, you've got to put them back together and study them as a whole or you're going to misunderstand God. And I would say the Word and the Spirit is a similar sort of thing. That is, that, is, um, that, it, that it's the Word that uses in through, the, I'm sorry, the Spirit in and through the Word that brings transformation. It's not, it's not separate from. And, and the whole issue of the sufficiency and the spirit and the word, it's been two separate issues. And so the Pentecostals, they've got all spirit and no word, so they need a balance. 
And we are all word but no spirit, so we need a balance, right? Is balance even the right terminology to use when we talk about this? And I say, no. I don't believe it is. Here's, a, here's an article, and I'll just, just share this. He is saying, he's looking at the common objection. That is, this, well, he... I came to the point of saying that, there, that where there is the word of God and faith in God, because of that word, there is the totality of Christianity. Is this anti-experiential? No, for it focuses on the central definitive experiences of the Christian life. And then he talks about this article. He's looking at a common objection. This narrow emphasis on word is at the expense of the spirit. It is argued that the, the arid tedium of much evangelical Christianity is seen right here. The emphasis on word has produced a religion of the mind only. Our preachers are lecturers, with all the dullness that implies, and our Bible studies are literary seminars. Surely there's more to Christianity than just words. It is an objection that is not without substance, and it comes from people who themselves uphold the reality and power of God's word. They would offer little objection to anything I've said thus far except to its exclusiveness, its narrowness. They would object, in other words, not to what I have said, only to what I have left unsaid. It would be agreed that wherever there is genuine Christianity, there will certainly be the word of God and faith in God. That is necessary, but it is not all. It is not adequate. It is not sufficient. When this inadequacy is felt, as I believe it is being felt by many today, Christian ministries begin to take on a new shape the Christian life begins to develop in a new way. There is, of course, a word dimension, but people begin to seek the missing spirit dimension. These may not be completely unrelated, but, the, but they are not, nevertheless viewed as distinct and different. The minister still studies his Bible and preaches it, of course, but he's also led by the Spirit, which is something distinct. The Christian person still reads their Bible and listens to sermons, but there's another experience sought after, an encounter with the Spirit. See, this is, I think, one of the things that we, we need to wrestle with because we're living it. An increasing number of Christian meetings are being structured around these two distinct dimensions of Christian experience. There's the reading the Bible with the sermon, and then there's a quite separate time when the Spirit of God is expected to do something more. Yeah, Joe, you're smiling because you know exactly what you're thinking something. I know it. It has been described to me like this. Of course God meets us in his word, but that is not the only way in which he deals with us. There's another dimension, a more direct working of God, almost a more tangible working by his spirit. It almost sounds Montanism, doesn't it? I want to suggest that this line of thinking and the implications it has for Christian life and ministry are mistaken in a most serious way. And then he, what he does is he looks, let me just tell you what he does. He looks at the collocation. What that means, uh, two words in conjunction, word and spirit, word and spirit. And he looks at that in the New Testament, or uh, the Bible, I'm sorry, and he, and he finds that the biblical teaching is, quote, where the, where the word of God is, there the spirit of God is also. Word and breath cannot be separated. There is an inseparable connection between God's spirit and God's word. That, I think, is critical for us. So the, so the conjunction and is not quite right. I understand why it's said, but in and through is more accurate. And let me just tell you what I've done here. This, this is from Calvin that talks about some of these things. It's very helpful. Um, you can see all these. And then there's Tim Keller does, that says the same thing. Um, and... David Peterson talks about this in the same way. Uh, and just so you know, he also talks about the importance of the, the present tense of the Word of God today. So there's, there's not something additional. Here it is, and it's present tense, God speaking right now. 
And that, that's what I'm, I'm spelling out here. It's, it's quite helpful. And here he talks about it as the sufficiency of Scripture as well. Um, extremely important. Let me conclude in this way. It's the Word of God that has the transforming power to change my life and your life. And here we're going we're gonna to read from 1 Thessalonians. Just listen. And I've... I've, I've focused on the, the central. Listen now to the gospel, the word, the transformation, the power, the life. Just listen to this. And every time we pre- read the Bible, every time we preach the scriptures, every time we teach the scriptures, this is the reality with which we do it. There's no better definition of regeneration than for verse 10 of First Thessalonians 4. Here it is. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Friends, I, I don't think there's, there's, there's a more powerful text to remind us that, friends, it's not your preaching, it's not your teaching that is the power of God for salvation. It's the Spirit of God using the word of God to transform the people of God. And we need to recommit to that. So our response, believe the word, study the word, obey the word, preach and teach the word, hide the word in your heart, delight in the word, meditate on the word, listen and hear the word, be eager for the word, examine the word, be dependent upon the Lord and his word, grow in Christ-likeness through the word. It is living and active and life-transforming. We're prayerful under the word. We're expectant because of the word. We are open to be changed by the Lord. There's nourishment, food, and life from the word. We read the word and we bow and worship the Lord of the word before the word of the Lord. Don't forget that the word of God is powerful. And that is what God the Spirit uses to transform the people of God into the likeness of his Son. Yes. Why don't you stand as we close in prayer? Father, what a wonderful reminder these days. Uh, we, we traffic often in these scriptures and they have become familiar. They are, uh, in a sense, a friend. And Lord, we are grateful for that. But Lord, might they not become too common? There's still a gravity uh, to this word. There, there is a, a, an awesomeness to this word. And, and Lord, it, and it's not just for somebody else. We read this word as a word from you and it's the, 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 it's, you're speaking it now 
God the Holy Spirit says. Oh God, we hear it afresh, new, right now. And not just for ourselves, but we, 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 we pray the same thing as we preach and teach your people so that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to transform the people of God. And might it be for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.